Hi, this is John from Prodigal Church. We want to thank you for listening to this week's teaching. The best way to watch and listen is through our Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store. We hope you are moved to love God and others in a greater way. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. Well, hello, friends. My name is Bruxy, and it's a real treat to be invited into your lives today to join you at Prodigal Church. I should also say welcome to my world. Welcome to my basement where we're hanging out together today. Um, Isn't it great uh, that there is this opportunity for us to connect through technology even though we are a long way apart and our hearts can be together? The New Testament church was committed to using the technology of their day to keep people connected even when they couldn't be together in person. And that was letter writing. And today we're able to use the technology that we have to keep us connected. I'm so grateful for it. And even to make new friends. Um, I'm pastor of a church called The Meeting House in Canada. And at The Meeting House, we're aware of what's going on at Prodigal Church and we are cheering for you and praying for you. So you got to know there's a group of us up here who are cheering you on. There are good things happening. And I'm so encouraged by this series that you are in the middle of Jesus for President. Talk about being timely. And you know, I hope that those of you who are processing through this series are aware that this this material you have been covering, and I've been tracking with you as great stuff. Uh, John, good on you. This is not just a timely series connecting with something that's culturally relevant. You're using a teachable moment in history to talk about some core themes of the gospel, the good news message of Jesus. So whether you're a longtime church person or you're kind of new to the whole thing, uh, this is great stuff that you are processing. And I I hope I don't drop the ball today. I want to contribute to this great discussion that you are already having. Um, I'm really glad to be a part of it. So where are we going? I want to talk about the gospel itself and how the gospel of the kingdom with Jesus as king shapes our relationship to the world around us and how we see that situated in the gospel. And then we want to also talk about how once we acknowledge this central theme of the kingdom, how that changes our relationship to the nation around us. And it also gives us what I would call political restfulness, political restfulness. That is um, how we can relate to the political landscape around us with a kind of peace and assurance like Jesus had in the face of his conversation with Pontius Pilate. We'll talk about that before we're done as well. So that's where we're headed. First of all, before we dive in, can I say a couple things? First of all, I really love turning monologue into dialogue. Um, This is a bit awkward. Um, We're not really having a chance to have conversation the way I would love. And so um, it feels like a little bit of an awkward first date where just one person doing all the talking. I get it, Um, but I, I hope we'll have a beautiful relationship in the future. That being the case, um, in order to give you a chance to do some of the talking, at, at the Meeting House, we often have Q&A as part of our teaching, people texting questions, whatever, and since we're not doing that now, I would love for you, if I do leave you with some unanswered questions, I think it's only fair that I step up the plate to the plate to answer any questions that I provoke. And so how about we say this, with a name like Bruxy Cavey, I'm really easy to find on all platforms of social media, whether that's Twitter or it's uh, Instagram or Facebook, whatever. Look me up and send me a message if I've provoked some questions. I think it's only fair that um, I, I stick around to answer them. I live for this stuff. I do. So I'd be happy to engage. Um, the other thing I'd love to mention is that coming out in November, so it's just around the corner, this is the other important thing that's happening in November, is my new book is releasing, which deals with thumb, some of the themes and some of the seams that we are talking about today and in this series. Um, that's called The End of Religion, and it really talks about how the Uh, how Jesus transitions us from the old covenant way of thinking to the new covenant way of thinking. I will say it's not only something that I think will benefit and supplement what you're talking about in this series, but it is also um, 
It's also a book that's primarily written to your non-Christian friends or people who might not be tuning in for a church service online on a Sunday. Um, but it's written in a way that a Christian could read it and also eavesdrop on the conversation, hopefully get something out of it. Um, I, we really care about finding tools that will not only teach us how to evangelize, will actually partner with us in the process of evangelizing, of connecting with non-Christians. And this is uh, one of those books. And so I commend it to you. Um, you can order that online wherever you order books. And, um, and thus ends my little commercial. Now, let's talk about the gospel. The, uh, the gospel has been presented in a kind of homogeneous way for decades within Western society. And we may not realize how much we've been influenced primarily by something called the Four Spiritual Laws that was developed by Bill Bright and, um, and his ministry in the 1950s. In the 1950s, this little pamphlet, the Four Spiritual Laws, became very useful to very many people, and I love it, and I've used it, um, but it really did present a version of the gospel that was rather truncated or narrowly focused. And whether you've heard of it or not, you've probably been influenced by it if you've been in at least the evangelical church for any length of time. It's left its mark. The four spiritual laws simply say this. Law one, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's an iconic sentence. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Law two, our sin has separated us from God. Law three, Jesus is God's only provision for our salvation. And law four, we must receive salvation by faith in Christ. That's beautiful truth. Uh, my suggestion, though, is that this is only half of the gospel. And we've missed out on the other half, which you are making up for during this series, Jesus for President. It, after the 1950s, then the Navigators came up with another presentation of the gospel called the Bridge to Life. And the Bridge to Life is just the same four points using different words. After that, the Billy Graham Association came up with steps to peace with God. Beautiful presentation of the gospel, same four points, just using different words. After that, we learned things like the Roman road, four different verses from the book of Romans, same four points actually, just using different words. And more recently, we have the reformed Roman road, which is based on the first four chapters of the book of Romans, and it's basically the same four points using different words. We evangelicals love these four points. I guess we just love four points in general. All predicated on the idea that sin is a problem to which Jesus is the solution. Uh, at the Meeting House, we've tried to help us have a, a memorable rubric to help us see a more fulsome uh, view of the gospel and share that with others. And so we call our version of this the gospel in 30 words. And I'd love to share it with you. The gospel in 30 words. This is not something we're supposed to just repeat to people, but something we hold internally, mentally to help us organize the biblical data on the gospel. Because what's a beautiful thing is that the gospel is not repeated the exact same way all the time throughout the New Testament. It always, it's such a, a multi-dimensional, world-changing message that has different aspects of it that will come to the fore depending on the conversation that someone is having, depending on the needs of the moment. There's different routes in based on the conversation you're having with someone to understanding different aspects of the gospel. Uh, when summing all this up, at least at the Meeting House, here's one of the ways that we keep our memories fixed on the fullness of the gospel, the gospel in 30 words. Here it is. Jesus is God with us. Come to show us God's love save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, and shut down religion so we can share in God's life. Let me say this again. Jesus is God with us. Come to show us God's love, 
save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, and shut down religion so we can share in God's life. Now, notice that those earlier versions of the gospel that we've been talking about being influential in the evangelical church over the last few decades would stop halfway through. Jesus is God with us, come to show us God's love, save us from sin. The end. Certainly true, certainly gospel. But you know what they say, a half-truth is really also a half-lie. It misses the fullness of reality. The gospel of the kingdom is so central to how Jesus preached his good news. And the coming of the new covenant, the end of the old and the beginning of the new was how Jesus interpreted even his own death. That this, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, he said to his disciples. This is how I want you to understand my death on the cross. I'm bringing about a whole new way of being in relationship with God, not the letter of the law. Religion is done. Now the spirit and the way of love leads. And that's what this new kingdom is going to look like. There's a lot more to the gospel. But let's focus on this central theme of the gospel, that Jesus came to set up his kingdom. And by the way, I called this the gospel in 30 words, and you now know, by the way, just how tightly wound you are or how stuck in the anal stage you might be, according to Freud, uh, because some of you made sure you counted to see whether or not that was exactly 30 words. And uh, yes, it was, wasn't it? Uh, but the fact that you had to check tells us something. Don't worry with enough prayer and therapy. You can move on from that stage. Okay, so what's the kingdom? What is the kingdom? When Jesus talked about the kingdom, of course, the kingdom in an earthly um, sense, that's an old-fashioned word for a nation or a country. And Jesus was saying, you're going to have citizenship in a different country, but my country's off the map. My country or my nation, the Jesus nation, is, is non-geographical. It, it, is, it, it has the, the qualities of a kingdom or of a country in that there's, there's someone leading the way. There's a shared will and a shared way. There's a culture that unites us in a variety of ways, but the kingdom culture is gonna be different and it's not bound by geography. It's an international, multi-ethnic kingdom. Uh, it's the it's kingdom of heaven on earth, sometimes called the kingdom of heaven, sometimes called the kingdom of God, but it was always something that is to manifest here and now on earth, not just something we, uh, we experience once we die and we go there. In fact, um, we can use a little arm demonstration. Are you watching? If you're just listening to the audio, sorry, you won't get this. But if you're, you're watching along, we can use an arm demonstration in trying to communicate this with one another, with our friends, etc. Um, if we were to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretend this is a graph, and my forearm is a graph, and my elbow is where I'm born, and my fingertips are where we die. All right, so do you want to try it with me? Go ahead. I know you're, you're watching this at home. Nobody can see you. It's okay. You can, you can be weird. How about you do this with me? If you raise your arm like so, think of your elbows where you're born and your fingertips are where you die. Um, now, if you're, if, if most religions would say, let's put our two arms together, our fingertips together, that at some point when you die, you get to start a new plane of existence. Uh, you move into paradise, our Muslim friends might say. Um, our atheist friends would say, nope, that's it. Once you die, it's all over. But other versions of faith would say you start something new. In fact, Christians have often talked this way. When I die, I enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, our Hindu friends would say we kind of, we, we go around a few more times and eventually we are able to enter nirvana. But I would say Christians, when we take this approach that say when we die, we enter the kingdom of heaven, we're missing something. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, he does this. Are you ready? Watch. He moves the two planes over top of one another. And so at this point, wherever this is in your life, 
When you commit to Jesus as your king, Jesus is Lord, as the Apostle Paul would say in Romans 10, 9, you have entered your eternal heavenly kingdom, even while still alive in this earth. That means when you die, this transi- transition of death, it's, it's, it's a mild transition. It, it is a secondary transition. The primary transition happens when you come into the kingdom of Christ. And that kingdom lasts forever. So that means you have begun your eternal life now. You have entered into eternity now. This is beautiful. There's, there's this line that I love from Jesus um, in John 5, 24. Uh, let me just look it up. Um, John 5, 24, where he says this. He says, Very truly I tell you, that's this translation, very truly I tell you, in the Greek it's actually amen, amen. Amen, amen. And you think, oh, is amen a word you say at the beginning of a sentence? No, not usually. Usually amen, back in the first century as well, was something that you would say in response to something. Amen just means I agree or I affirm this. You know, it's like I'm Bruxy Cavey and I approve this message. It's a way of saying yes, right on. And Jesus is interesting in the way he would teach. Sometimes he gets so excited about something he was about to say, he would amen his own sermon even before he preached it. So he'd be like, mm, oh, this is good. Mm, mm, mm. All right, I'm going to share something right now. Mm, amen. Oh, amen. And then he would say the thing that's so important. So when you read very truly or truly, truly, um, that's a double amen that Jesus is giving himself. So amen, amen, he says, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, has it already. And will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. This is the concept of the kingdom. Uh, If you've heard these words of Jesus and you believe him and you believe in God that God has sent Christ, you already have your eternal life. You will not be judged. Isn't that an amazing, irreligious concept? I mean, most religions are working hard in this life so that on judgment day you pass the test or you... You come back as something better in your karmic cycle. You're working hard to achieve something better in the afterlife. Jesus has such an irreligious message because he doesn't end around around all religions as God is giving you as a gift of grace, something that religion is always trying but failing to accomplish. All you have to do is trust that it's true. That's called faith and you receive the gift of grace. He says, the person who believes me in this already has crossed over from death to life. You've already moved into your eternal plane of existence and you will not be judged. God has taken your future judgment. Now there's no fear because he click drags and drops your future judgment into your present and declares you not guilty, justified, justified, never sinned, not only declared not guilty, but made new, made righteous with God, born into a whole new way of existing. These would be concepts you'd think we would only talk about happening at death. You know, death would be a fine time to say, I've been born into a new way of existing. I've been made spiritually pure. I've, I've shuffled off the mortal coil and something beautiful now. I've become a part of it. I'm fused with the divine. But all those ways of thinking, Jesus talks about them as current realities. When we enter into the kingdom, into this new will and way of our creator, we're starting to live our eternal life now. And so that means we can ask the question, what kind of life do I want to live for eternity? Well, I'll start living that life now. Do I want to live an eternal life of peace? Then I live a life of peace starting now. Do I want to live an eternal life of love? 
then I live that life of love now. Um, whatever I'm looking forward to for forever, well, I've already started my forever life now. Often people wrestle with being defined by their past, don't they? Past hurts, past pains. I realize that, and that can be very difficult for many of us. The beautiful thing about Jesus is he says, you no longer need to be defined by your past. Now you can be defined by your future. You are being changed into the likeness of Christ. Where are you headed? Where are you headed? Let that define you. And now move in that direction. And this idea of the kingdom then, the kingdom of heaven, is the kingdom of heaven on earth. Uh, there's, uh, if, for us to think this way, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mean that we change our way of thinking, that we reconsider, reorder, reorient, rethink. Um, there's a biblical word for that, and that's the word repent. Whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom, well, most of the time when he talks about the kingdom, he'll call people to repent. And that means you're going to have to do some rethinking here, because my understanding of the kingdom is going to be different than your religious understanding or your political understanding. So he says in Mark 1, 15, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. That means to rethink. You've got to rethink everything. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, says Jesus. You know, um, I once saw someone holding a sign on the street that said, the end is near, repent. And Jesus says repent, but not because the end is near, but because the kingdom is here. That's why we repent. You know, most often we associate the word repentance with being uh, sorry for our past. I'm sorry for my sins, I repent. And the Bible does use the word repent that way, to be sorry for your past, but most of the time Jesus used the words repent. He doesn't use it in connection with our sins and being sorry for our past. He uses it in connection with the kingdom and anticipating our future. Repent, think about where you are in history. You're at the beginning of something glorious. Lean into that, rethink it through, and commit to being on mission with Jesus to bring about this beautiful kingdom. This means that we're not citizens so much of our earthly kingdom. Uh, you, my friends, you may be American citizens officially, but you and I have more in common. We are a part of the same kingdom more than our earthly nations would divide us. Uh, we're, we're actually ambassadors from the same kingdom to these earthly nations. So. I'm not so much Canadian as I am Christian, if that makes sense. The I-A-N at the end of Christian just is like an apostrophe S, one who belongs to. As a Canadian, I guess I could say I belong to Canada, but as a Christian, I belong to Jesus. He's my king. Um, and so you and I, we're part of the same kingdom. We have been given assignments as ambassadors representing our king to different nations. You're, you're, you're an ambassador to America, an ambassador to Canada. And to be a good ambassador, it means we need to know the will and the way of our king. Right? If, if you're an ambassador to another country, if you were chosen to be the American ambassador to France, you would have to know a couple of things. You'd have to know French culture and, and language and how to connect there. You've got to translate the message well. But even more than that, you'd need to know the policies of your president. You would need to know what your nation and your government stands for in order to be a helpful ambassador. You can't just make up your own stuff. Well, this is our identity. The Apostle Paul talks about us in 2 Corinthians 5 being ambassadors, representatives of our king to our nation. And so we get to know, we have to get to know the will and the way of Jesus well. And we come to church and we listen together and we remind ourselves of what that is. And then we engage with the world around us with a fresh message. We don't just become part of that culture. We're, um, we're visitors. We're visitors with a message. 
hopefully it'll be a helpful one. There's this beautiful passage where Jesus in Luke 17 says, uh, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Hmm. Coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. In other words, don't look for the physical, for the army, for the political, for, for, for the institutional, for the architectural. It's not religious and it's not political in the typical sense that you can point to it and say, we're going to that place or to that country. The kingdom of God is within you, he says. Now, he says this to a group of Pharisees. I don't think he, he's actually pronouncing that they are currently experiencing the kingdom within them. But in principle, he is saying, the kingdom of God is within you. The word you here in the Greek is plural. Uh, so he's saying the kingdom of God is not only inside us as individuals, but it's in our relationships together as a community, as fellow citizens, we manifest the kingdom culture. We offer an alternative to what we see in the world around us. We do not engage the same way and just reflect back to our society what they are already experiencing. We are a new society with a new kingdom culture reflected in the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and goodness and, and gentleness and self-control. These things are our kingdom culture and we are ambassadors on behalf of this. When people get involved with the church, it's like going to an embassy where you're kind of standing on foreign soil and getting a bit of a taste of that nation, the Jesus nation, in the community that we call the church. This is a beautiful purpose and privilege for us. And it is our purpose. I wake up every day knowing my purpose in this world. And you can too. Our purpose in this world is to experience and then extend the kingdom of Christ. There's, there's your life purpose. Wake up every day to better experience and extend the kingdom of Christ, which is this beautiful kingdom of love and joy and peace. I said before we were done, I talk about how all of this can manifest in what I would call political restfulness. Um, let me say a few words about that and then we'll wrap this up. The, uh, there's this concept within Christian theology called providence. Providence means that God is working through national histories and personal histories to bring about the best possible good. Our Calvinist friends would believe that, of course, God brings about the best possible good because he is controlling everything that happens. Uh, I'm not a Calvinist. I would say that God promises to work through all things and bring about the best possible good while he is allowing our complete free will to make the choices that we make. But God is so great that he can orchestrate all of that towards his good. However you think about providence, we can agree that God is working in all things to bring about the best possible good. There's this um, beautiful verse in the Bible, Romans 8.28, that kind of captures this. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Here's the thing though, the, 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 the Greek verb translated works here, sunergeo, actually means to work together with a person, to partner with people, to cooperate together. Uh, so a, a more literal translation of Romans 8, 28 would be, and we know that in all things God works together. That's what the verb means, implying with us, that in all things God wants to partner with us and our choices and our attitudes and our, 
our mission to be ambassadors of his kingdom. In all things, God works with us, through us, for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now that's providence at work, and we get to be caught up in that and participants in that. How beautiful. Uh, if we believe in that providence, we can see it at work in all kinds of places. Like Acts 17, when it comes to national history, the Apostle Paul, when he's preaching in Acts 17, he's talking about the history of the Greek nation and Greek culture. And he says to the Greeks that he's talking to, he says, from one man, this is Acts 17, 26 and 27, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So God is at work through nations. And you know what? It's interesting because in a fallen world, I don't know the story of any nation that hasn't been established without violence, without sin. I don't know of too many ancient cultures, that's for sure, at the time that Paul is saying this, that, that were um, able to build what we would call civilization without barbarism, without slavery, um, without s some human horrors. Some of the great, beautiful wonders of the world, like the pyramids, only exist because of horror, torture, slavery, violence. And we are encouraged here to know that while God is not the cause of these things, he won't let one drop of pain go to waste. He will be at work through all things, even the horrible things. Our job is to repent in that way we talked about being sorry for the past. We repent of that. And then we say, God, your job, we believe, is to bring some good out of even our failure. That's what's at the center of our faith is the cross of Christ. That's the greatest human failure, isn't it? God himself comes to us in Jesus to show us his love, save us from sin, set up his kingdom and shut down religion. He comes to tell us how much he loves us and we reject his message and we crucify him. It is the greatest human failure of all time and God uses our failure to bring about the greatest blessing of all time. At the center of our faith is how God redeems our worst mistakes. And so God can do that in your life and in my life as we repent. It's really good news. And even when we mess things up as nations, it's okay, we can do both at the same time, you know, we're big boys and girls. We can repent of our past and say that was wrong and say, how is God bringing good out of this? Both can be done. And so the Apostle Paul continues in Acts 17. He says, God did this. In other words, he worked through your national history and our national histories. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. God is always at work through history to bring about the best, the, mo the maximum opportunity for people to find him. So it doesn't matter whether Biden wins or Trump wins. It doesn't matter whether in Canada, well, I don't know what our politicians' names are. I mostly watch your news. Thank you for the entertainment. It doesn't matter. Uh, we can engage, we can care, but we care as something infinitely secondary. We can vote, we can be involved, but we are involved as something infinitely secondary because in the end, whatever happens, we say, okay, we're those people who will say, even if we elected the wrong person, I think the wrong person, God can use this. He's at work in this to bring about an opportunity for more people to discover the kingdom of Christ. And that's what's ultimately important to us. This brings about political restfulness. Last illustration of this, and with this I close, which I've learned are beautiful words to hear come from the lips of an already overlong preacher. And with this I close. Do you remember the story of Jesus when he is arrested and he's standing before Pilate? The Gospel of John talks about this in John 19. 
there is something about the way the Gospels talk about the crucifixion of Jesus and everything leading up to that, that that reveals something for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. And that is that this, the crucifixion, is the coronation of our king, of his upside-down kingdom where defeat is actually victory, where suffering is actually what love looks like. Uh, you know, they give him a robe of royalty and a staff and, and a crown of thorns. And then just in case you're not catching the irony, what the Romans did ironically, God is revealing genuinely. Uh, they, they put a sign above his head. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. In case you didn't catch it, this is the coronation of our King, of his upside down kingdom of love, and including enemy love and forgiveness and grace. And in the context of this story about the coronation of our King and his kingdom, uh, there is this beautiful political restfulness in Jesus. He's standing before Pilate, and Pilate is confused because Jesus is not showing the appropriate fear that Pilate has the power of life and death over him. In fact, Pilate says in John 19, 10, 11, he says, Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, Don't you realize I have the power, I have the power either to free you or to crucify you. And how does Jesus respond? He says, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Wow. You know, Pilate was a bad leader. Do any historical study and you will see, not just in his relationship with Jesus, but in many things, he was a terrible politician. He was a bad leader. And God said, I'll use that. I'll use it. I won't let any bad decision go to waste. God doesn't want our bad decisions. Let's be influencers for good. But when bad decisions are made, God says, I will use it. And Jesus has this political restfulness. It's okay, Pilate. You're not actually the one with the power. God's already at work. He's going to use even your bad decisions right now to bring about ultimate good. That's what God does. So I commission you, my friends, be as involved as your conscience leads you to be, but never out of desperation, never thinking that getting the right person elected is the hope of the world or even the hope of the nation. The hope of the nation is always Jesus. And we can rest in that. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for my new friends, and I pray that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we will have a restful delight in the days ahead as we head forward and we see what you are doing around us, in us, and through us. And I pray for anyone who's being a part of today's service and message who is kind of new to figuring Jesus out. I pray that they would have a, an awareness of your Holy Spirit present with them and drawing them toward Jesus. May they know that this is a community where they can ask questions receive thoughtful answers, and be embraced and accepted. Thanks again, Father, for all that uh, you have given us through Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you, Prodigal Church.